This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, September 9th, 2022, episode 95, concerning princely heads and the bishop's monkeys. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. For quite a while now, we've been tied up in special topics with our Medieval True Crime miniseries and then its three-part spinoff into the literary highwayman hijinks of Helmbrecht, so it's high time we got back to basics with a medieval chronicle. And where better to start with that than our favorite grab bag of historiographical tidbits, the 14th century Lanarkost Chronicle. The last time we dipped into this source was right before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, back in our 2019 Halloween episode, episode 77, concerning some demons of the Lanarkost Chronicle. Today, we're not going to get material quite as supernatural. Instead, we'll get that classic Lanarkost whiplash of going from big history into a small, odd, and seemingly trivial anecdote. The anecdote will come to in the text itself, and really requires no introduction. The big history component of this excerpt has me a little bit worried. I'm not sure I can quite do it justice, but it's also an event covered in a number of other interesting sources, so we may well get another chance to go deep on it in the future. This event is the failed rebellion that brought about the end, uh, at least for the time being, of Welsh independence from the English monarchy. I don't really know, uh, but I imagine this could be a topic that still touches some patriotic sensitivities, and which our source is just giving us the English perspective on, Uh, and I haven't been able to get my hands on a good Welsh source to balance that out with uh, this episode, so for now, we'll just have to hear the English perspective and take it with the understanding that when the winners write the history books, they don't always portray events with uh, rigorous accuracy. Of course, Neither do the losers, uh, and thereby hangs the tale of the subjectivity of all historiography. The other point of sensitivity that I feel somewhat ill-equipped to navigate is one of language. Uh, This account features Welsh names, and there has been a long tradition of bluntly anglicizing those names, uh, which has been countered by a more recent movement towards pronouncing Welsh names in Welsh fashion. But... Some of those pronunciations feature phonemes that are not used in English and are unfamiliar to native English speakers like myself. Uh, One such phoneme features prominently in the name of a major character in our excerpt for today from the Lanarkost Chronicle. This is the last native prince of Wales, Llewellyn or Llewellyn ap Griffith. In Welsh, the initial double L of that name is a voiceless alveolar lateral fricative with the key word there being lateral. It's the sound made by blowing air around the sides of the tongue, almost like through the the teeth and cheeks. So, I have a hard time doing it without getting very spittily. Something something closer to that. Uh, And when I've listened to recordings of native speakers making the sound, sometimes it's got more of an SH kind of quality. Fluellen, fluellen. And sometimes it's got a bit more of a glottal quality, almost a cl, like cluellen, but see that I don't feel like I'm putting the air in the right spot. Anyway, this sound is not really in the repertoire of the English language, uh, and that makes good pronunciation tricky for someone like me, 
And also, Llewellyn has become a not-that-uncommon name used in English with an English pronunciation, which just complicates things in a muscle memory kind of way. So, one finds oneself entangled in nationalist sensitivities. On the one hand, there is absolutely an oppressive history of the English suppressing and erasing Welshness, and the Anglicization of Welsh names and things like BBC broadcasts is part of that, uh, as well as centuries of earlier media too, of course. So the reassertion of Welshness, of Welsh people and places, is an act of repudiation of that erasure. On the other hand, for a non-Welsh speaker to attempt those names also steers us into awkward territory. Uh, Like if an American Midwesterner comes back and talks about their trip to Mexico rather than Mexico. Attempts at authenticity can so easily blur over into pretension. But on a third hand, English speakers have also progressed sufficiently that, unlike Lord Byron, we now say Don Juan instead of Don Juan. So my choice here is to try to have my cake and eat it too by acknowledging the Welsh name Llewellyn and then reading this English source in an anglicized mode, which I hope serves more as an illustration of past cultural repression Uh, and not a perpetuation of it. To help balance out my Llewellyn, I will pronounce his brother's name David, sort of Welsh fashion, or at least closer to Welsh fashion, rather than David, as English usually does it. So, for those of us not up on our Welsh history, who are Llewellyn and David ap Griffith? Now, the Welsh-English conflict is not one of my areas of expertise, particularly in terms of dynastic and military history, and just generally I think that's my biggest medieval blind spot, you know, who fought who over what. Um, In other words, old-fashioned traditional history. I just don't care that much about a lot of those those narratives. Um, I feel like it's kind of a major accomplishment for me just knowing the sequence of English monarchs, Uh, and even then there are a few uh, fuzzy spots in that list that I really have to plumb the depths to recall. And anyway, it just leaves me feeling a bit awkward about that, knowing how many of you listeners are real history buffs, and here I'm trying to tell some of these big stories based, well, mostly on reading Wikipedia and maybe a couple of journal articles, Uh, well, and of course, primary sources, like the Lanarkost Chronicle. But that's the most dangerous thing, really, since frequently... Those primary sources are biased or otherwise flawed, and yet they leave a big impression on me about the course of events that might not always get corrected by the best of current historical scholarship. Case in point, for the chain of events that led to the final, question mark, fall of Wales to the English crown, I've read several medieval English-authored portrayals of it, but the modern historian's understanding of it is something I've only gleaned through lighter weight material. And, as I've said, it's an area around which there remain some fraught nationalistic feelings. So, my strategy here is that at the risk of maybe not providing quite enough counterbalance to English bias, I'm going to stick to the broad strokes of what happened leading up to the events covered in our excerpt from the Lanarkost Chronicle, so that at least you can experience its narrative with some notion of how it fits into a larger timeline. And apologies if there are any major points of contention in the historical conversation about these events that I blithely pass over. It is a story full of outrages and alleged villainy, 
and such things are quite subject to distortion and diverging interpretations. On that note, speaking of unreliable historians, it's a shame Shakespeare never tried his hand at any Welsh history plays, uh, outside of the Tudor kings, I guess, because there is serious drama here. We'll start in the year 1240 with a different Llewellyn and a different David. This is Llewellyn the Great, King of Gwyneth, who is dying after dominating Wales for 45 years. At his death in this year, his crown goes to his son, David, passing over his firstborn son, Griffith, who had the political disadvantage of being illegitimate, whereas David was the product of the marriage of Llewellyn and Joan, the daughter of King John of England. When David came to power, he had his half-brother imprisoned to remove him as a threat, since Griffith, having a Welsh mother, had a popularity edge on the new half-English prince. It's not long before Griffith is handed over to King Henry III, who puts him into the Tower of London for about three years, until Griffith dies in a failed escape attempt, the tale being that he tried to climb down out of a window using the classic cartoon device of a rope made out of bedsheets, and his improvised rope broke and he fell to his death. Griffith left behind four sons, two of whom we need to particularly attend to because they are the Llewellyn and David Ap Griffith of our story today. Oh, and if you weren't aware, the Ap in these names is Welsh for son of, just like Mac and Fitz are in MacDonald and Fitzgerald. Their uncle, the other David, continues to rule Wales, being the first to formally claim the title Prince of Wales, uh, Llewellyn the Great Kinda sorta did that before him, but David really made the title official. However, after ruling for just over five years, David suddenly died at the age of 33 without a legitimate heir, leaving Wales to his four nephews, who directly fell to fighting with each other for supremacy. And looming over this fraternal conflict is Henry III of England, who is absolutely doing all he can to pit the brothers against each other, uh, he's the U.S. funneling weapons and money and diplomatic favor into a South American civil war in the hopes of getting a regime more favorable to U.S. interest, or in this case, just destabilizing the whole region enough that he can march in and take over. And given that Llewellyn Ap Griffith is known as Llewellyn the Last, the last native prince of Wales, you can take a guess as to what outcome happens. But I'm getting slightly ahead of myself. The conflict amongst the sons of Griffith eventually ends up with Llewellyn in power, his eldest brother Owen essentially retiring from politics and kind of quietly dropping out of history, and his younger brother David hanging around in the wings and scheming, plotting at least one unsuccessful assassination attempt on his brother, courting the King of England, and just bouncing in and out of favor with both courts, it seems. There certainly is more than a whiff of Shakespeare's Richard III coming off of David Ap Griffith. There's a lot of big history that happens during the 35 years of Llewellyn's reign, including the Second Barons' War, which we discussed way back in our Simon de Montfort episodes, uh, episodes 13, 14, and 15. Llewellyn has a significant role in that conflict, uh, and he sides with Simon and the Barons against King Henry and the future King Edward I. Indeed, Llewellyn was set to marry Simon's daughter, Eleanor, but an angry King Edward intercepted the ship she was on and put her in prison. Edward then, with David as an ally, marched an enormous army against Llewellyn, 
and with this threat got the Welsh prince to agree to the Treaty of Aberconway in 1277, which greatly reduced Llewellyn's lands, forced him to recognize the English king as his sovereign, and put David into the line of succession in Wales. On the plus side, after this capitulation, King Edward finally allowed Llewellyn and Eleanor de Montfort to get married. And that pretty much brings us up to where the Lanercost Chronicle is going to start. In 1282, just a few years after the treaty, all the Welsh lords, including David, who had sided with the English against Llewellyn, realized that actually the demands of the English king were getting a bit burdensome, and so they revolted, with David taking the lead and attacking the English at Harden Castle. This then drags Llewellyn into the conflict, rather against his own inclinations, but he feels obligated to support his brother. And now, we'll shift over to the Lanercost Chronicle to hear what happened next. Here's the Lanercost Chronicle's account of the years 1283 and 1284, as translated by Herbert Maxwell. unlucky course of that year, the Welsh nation, unable to pass their lives in peace, broke over their borders on Palm Sunday, carrying fire and sword among the people engaged in procession, and even laid siege to some places, whose prince Llewellyn, deceived, more's the pity, by the advice of his brother David, fiercely attacked his lord the king. As we read written about Christ, him whom I loved most hath set himself against me. For the king had given his own niece, only daughter of the Earl of Montfort, a lady of noble birth, endowed with the ample possessions of her father, in marriage to Llewellyn, by whom he had two sons. But David was so much in the king's confidence that he got himself appointed guardian of the king's head in place of the great David of Idacus. And forasmuch as nothing is so deadly as an enemy within the household, he persuaded his brother to rebel, trusting after the act to conciliate the king by his, David's, proved devotion. Having therefore raised an army, the king went in person to Wales, accompanied by gallant men, where, albeit at great expense and loss of men, he first occupied the land of Anglesey, which was fertile, abounding in all good things, which island he divided amongst English farmers, removing the abbey of Aberconway and founding it elsewhere. But in that place, because of its suitability, he built a town, a castle, and a spacious harbor, the ditch surrounding the castle with the tide. At this time, the head of Llewellyn, who had been slain by the treachery of his own people, was sent to the king, although he would not have approved of this being done. However, it was taken to the Tower of London and fixed upon a stake. Arising out of these events, the king took proceedings against the traitor David. For, having returned to Hereford, he intended to revisit the seat of his government when fresh rumors reached him that the author of perfidy could not desist from adding to his iniquity. The king therefore resumed the campaign, and, determined to exterminate the whole people of that nation, he caused them to be beset by land and sea in the district of Snowdon with a great fleet, so that by famine he might crush those stony hearts which relied upon safety in stones and rocks. At length, David, having been conquered through privation, surrendered, and the king sent him forward to the Tower of London with wife and children, and, having built Flint Castle, 
received the common people to mercy, having appointed his own bailiffs and made many new laws. He also possessed himself of the ancient and secret treasures of that people, dating, as is believed, from the time of Arthur, among which he found a most beautiful piece of the Holy Cross carved into a portable cross, which was the glory of their dominion and carried the presage of their doom, which cross, it is said, Helena kept after the invention as a special portion and brought with her when she returned to Britain with her husband. The Welsh had been accustomed to call it, after the fashion of their own language, Crossknife. Thus the king returned from the said campaign about the nativity of the glorious virgin, bringing with him as proof of his triumph the ensign of salvation of the human race, and, with a great procession of nobles, bishops, and clergy, brought that monument of our redemption to London to be adored by the citizens. David's children were condemned to perpetual imprisonment, but David himself was first drawn as a traitor, then hanged as a thief. Thirdly, he was beheaded alive, and his entrails burnt as an incendiary and homicide. Fourthly, his limbs were cut into four parts as the penalty of a rebel, and exposed in four of the ceremonial places in England as a spectacle, to wit, the right arm with a ring on the finger in York, the left arm in Bristol, the right leg and hip at Northampton, the left leg at Hereford. But the villain's head was bound with iron, lest it should fall to pieces from putrefaction, and set conspicuously upon a long spear shaft for the mockery of London. Just as the holy Jeremiah composed metrical dirges for the desolation of Judea, so the Welsh nation composed a heroic elegy upon the death of their prince and the desolation of their nation, at the end whereof they always commemorate David with curses, for as much as he was the author of this misfortune, whereupon H, a versifying monk often quoted in the Chronicle, spoke these lines, David of Wales, a thief and traitor, slayer of men, of church a hater, a fourfold criminal in life, now dies by horse, fire, rope, and knife, the ruffian thus deprived of breath, most meetly dies by fourfold death. In the same year, John, prior of Lanercost, resigned, for whom adequate provision was granted and confirmed under the seal of Bishop Ralph. In the same year, on the morrow of the Assumption of the Blessed Mary, Simon of Dreffield was elected prior. Item. In the same year, on the 5th of the Ides of January, William, Archbishop of York, was translated, whose translation was procured and the expenses thereof borne by Sir Anthony Beck, who, in the same year, was consecrated Bishop of Durham in the presence of the king and chief men of the country. In the same year, Edward V, son of Edward IV, was born at Carnarvon. At the Feast of Holy Trinity, Robert de Coquina, Bishop of Durham, died, and when he was about to be interred in the chapter house of that place, those who were making the grave impinged upon the tomb of a bishop unknown to them, Turgo, who had been prior of Durham and afterwards bishop of St. Andrew in Scotland, but returning to Durham, ended his life in that place. By this time he had lain in the depth of the earth eight score and nine years, yet he was not only found entire in his body, but also in his vestments, the diggers having accidentally broken the case containing his pastoral staff. Having therefore shown the unchanged remains of this venerable man to several persons, they filled in the place with the earth that had been thrown out, and prepared elsewhere a grave befitting such remains. We have seen this man, about whose funeral we are now speaking, 
in life bountiful enough and merry, also quite facetious enough at table. It occurred to me once to extract a little meaning from his sport, by way of example. For instance, he kept in his court, after the custom of modern prelates, as some relief from their cares, a couple of monkeys, an old and a young one. One day, at the end of dinner, desiring to be refreshed by amusement rather than food, the bishop caused a silver spoon with whitened almonds to be placed in the enclosure of the younger monkey, the bigger one being kept away from it. She, the little monkey, seeing the coveted food and wishing to avoid being despoiled by the bigger one, made every endeavor to stuff all the contents of the spoon into her left cheek, which she managed to do. Then, just as she thought to escape with the spoil, the older monkey was released and ran to her, seized the right cheek of the loudly screaming little one, drew out all that was stuffed into the left cheek as if out of a little bag, and refreshed itself until not a single almond was left. Everyone who saw this burst out laughing, but I perceived therein an image of the covetous of this world, calling to mind that proverb of Solomon in the 22nd chapter, He that oppresseth the poor to increase his riches shall himself give to a richer man and come to want. So, I don't know if our chronicler intends this little exemplum about Bishop Robert's monkeys to comment on anything in the narrative of the Welsh Rebellion. David certainly gets eaten up by Edward, the bigger fish, but I don't know that it fits to characterize David as an oppressor of the poor who then gets oppressed himself. Edward is the one who best fits that description, um, but Edward never really gets a comeuppance from a tougher monkey. So, I think we are just dealing with classic Lanarkost Chronicle eclecticism. We get the story of the bishop's monkeys after the deaths of Llewellyn and David Ap Griffith because the bishop just happened to die that year and the chronicler has this anecdote connected to the bishop ready to share. Now, given the dramatic narrative I presented of some of the multiple conflicts and betrayals among the sons of Griffith, our chronicler kind of buries the lead in rather offhandedly noting Llewellyn's own death. He basically gives it one sentence. We learn more detail about what happened to Llewellyn's head than about how he lost it. But this vagueness may reflect actual uncertainties, then and still now, about what exactly happened to Llewellyn. The point that most sources agree on is that while out on campaign, he separated from the main body of his army and was ambushed and killed. Exactly what led Llewellyn to go off with just a small entourage varies from account to account. One says he was tricked, thinking he was going to meet with some Welsh lords who were willing to pay him homage, and who then captured and killed him instead. Uh, a local legend has it that he was off on a romantic liaison and got caught on his way back. In some versions, Llewellyn is specifically targeted and executed, and in others it comes across as almost unintentional and accidental that he's killed. We can see that latter tradition in the account given by John Capgrave in his Chronicle of England, written in late Middle English in the first half of the 15th century. So, while it's still very much another English perspective on the war, here's at least a different account from that of Lanarkost for you to consider. Here's what Capgrave writes in his English, just with modern pronunciation. I'll also use his version of Llewellyn, which is Levlin, L-E-V-L-Y-N-E. 
Uh, and I'll pronounce that V as a V. It's possible it could have been a U or a W sound, but elsewhere in his chronicle, U, V, and W all appear, clearly with their modern sounds. So I'll assume that that's what was intended. So here's Capgrave's version of the Welsh conflict. In the ninth year of Edward, Levelin, Prince of Wales, began to rebel, paid not his tribute, destroyed poor men. The king went into the marches, and with him the Bishop of Canterbury. Because Levelin would not come to the king's presence, therefore the king sent the bishop unto him to treat him to peace. But he found him untreatable, for which cause the bishop cursed him, and so the king left that journey for that time. In the ten year of his reign, he entered into Snowdon, and while the king was there, they fought together, the Englishmen and the Welshmen. Much harm was due on both sides. So happed Edmund Mortimer for to ransack the dead bodies, and amongst diverse heads that were there, he found a Levelin head, which he brought to the king. The king sent it to London and made it be set on the tower. In the next year following, the king took Davy, Levelin brother, and put him in prison. Then had he disposition of all Wales at his pleasance. Soon after, he set a parliament at Shrewsbury, and there was Davy, Levelin brother, drawn, hanged, and quartered, and his quarters sent to diverse places of England. So, some great dialect features there in Capgrave's English. Uh, indeed, a couple that are quite similar to features of African-American vernacular English today. Uh, I'm not proposing any direct inheritance there from late middle or early, early modern English, but it is interesting how the status of certain grammatical usages can change across time and social categories. In terms of content, Capgrave's version includes virtually no betrayals, uh, other than the betrayal of the homage to the King of England. Lanercost gives us a Llewellyn who is tragically deceived into joining the war by his brother and is murdered by the disloyal among his own people. There seems to be a certain respect offered towards Llewellyn and a clear scapegoating of David. Capgrave paints Llewellyn as fully complicit, uh, even the active party in attacking the King of England and who dies in general combat. And if anything, David's brutal execution could be read as the tragic repercussions of Llewellyn's aggression. So even two English sources don't exactly agree on how to view the sons of Griffith. Anyway, Let's talk a bit about Bishop Robert's monkeys. When simians show up in medieval art, it's almost always as a representation of human traits. The chief trait observed about apes from classical times through the Middle Ages is that they imitate human beings. Indeed, Isidore of Seville notes that a popular false etymology for simian was from similitudo, for their similarity to humans. Longtime listeners might remember episode 38, concerning men afflicted by snakes and some serpent lore, in which we had an excerpt from Richard de Fourneval's Bestiaire d'Amour that was mostly about snakes, but also included a tidbit about how hunters could catch monkeys by conspicuously putting on shoes and then leaving a pair behind because the monkey would then copy them and put on the shoes and be easily trapped since a monkey can't climb trees with shoes on. In the early Middle Ages, some Christian symbolism associated apes with the devil, and they were considered almost as deformed mockeries of humanity, and they're talked about in more allegorical or even mythological terms. But by the 12th century, Eastern trade routes had begun to bring live apes and monkeys to Western Europe as pets and court entertainments, 
and the devilish associations start to fall away, and a more naturalistic, observational approach to comparing ape behavior with human behavior comes back to the fore. The fact that among all exotic animals, monkeys and apes were not uncommon in the courts and bishops' palaces of Europe is further attested to by how relatively good the illustrations of them in manuscripts are. I'm sure many of you have seen the images of medieval attempts to represent elephants and rhinoceroses and crocodiles and other fauna from distant lands, which are amusingly off the mark in most cases. Simians also appear frequently in marginalia, probably because they serve as these great emblems of human foibles and fit the satirical tone of a lot of marginalia. But unlike manuscript rhinos with long, graceful deer legs or oddly snub-nosed crocodiles, the monkeys generally look a whole lot like believable, if somewhat cartoonish, monkeys. They fit more alongside the images of dogs and rabbits and oxen than those of these barely recognizable foreign animals. Many a medieval illuminator seems to have had the opportunity to observe monkeys or apes firsthand, or at a minimum, enough did to create a solid artistic tradition around what monkeys should look like that others could ape in their own drawings. And one of the things I love about this anecdote about Bishop Robert's monkeys is how it really is just a straightforward depiction of real animal behavior. Sure, it gets a little quasi-allegorical explication at the end, but there are no literary or sermonizing embellishments to the description itself. It could come right out of a primatologist's field notes. And while we're here, let's take a little etymological journey into the classic pedantic distinction between monkeys and apes. In the present day, in English, one is supposed to use ape to refer to primates without tails and monkey for those with tails. This doesn't quite match the actual biological taxonomic relationships between species, but it's a rough enough fit. Is it a useful or even accurate enough distinction to shame people for misusing? Perhaps not. Uh, and furthermore, it is a relatively recent development, linguistically speaking. Uh, for one thing, most of the species we now term apes weren't known to most of the English-speaking world until the 17th century and later. But the word ape comes from Old English and could refer to any primate, uh, except humans. The actual monkey-ape distinction we're now taught is essentially an early 20th century invention. But there is an evolutionary mystery here, an as-yet-unanswered question of origins, and that is with the word monkey. Monkey shows up in English in the early 1500s seemingly from nowhere. No obvious source for monkey has been identified, or rather, Lots have been proposed, but no real consensus has been reached among linguists. So, here are just a handful of the theories for the origin of monkey, as covered in a great blog post for the Oxford University Press by Anatoly Lieberman, the link to which you can find on the page for this episode on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. So, most words borrowed into English come from either a Germanic path or a Romance language path, so naturally scholars have sought the origins of monkey in those two linguistic barrels. On the Germanic side, one possibility comes from the name of a character in a low German version of the epic of Reynard the Fox. In that text, Martin the Ape has a son named Monike, uh, M-O-N-E-K-E. Perhaps this character name traveled to England with German performers and became a popular sensation, and then became the common word monkey. 
It would be a bit like if we started calling elephants Dumbos or rats Remy's. Except it wouldn't quite be like that because Monike is a very minor character in Reynard the Fox, whose name appears only once in the written text. So this would be more like if we started calling rabbits Rias. You know, Thumper's sister from Bambi. Everybody remembers Rhea. So yeah, not a particularly compelling hypothesis. On the Romance language side, Spanish has mona, meaning monkey, and there are similar mon-based words in Italian and French, but the origins of those are also quite fuzzy. One theory has mona as a corruption or contraction of Madonna, and if you attach a diminutive ending to that, you get little woman, and that somehow gets linked to monkeys. Uh, you also have little monks as a proposed origin, with a similar logic to how capuchin monkeys got their name, though their name comes from the late 1700s, so the linkage is weak. A similar idea sees Romance languages, namely French, borrowing a Germanic-Dutch word, mannequin, which literally means little man, and is a word that appears in English around the same time monkey does. That sounds pretty compelling to me, but it apparently hasn't convinced most professional linguists. And so, if Europe doesn't provide a satisfactory source for the word, then maybe, and reasonably, the word comes from a place that actually also naturally has monkeys and a trade in monkeys. And essentially, that's where Lieberman lands, though the problem here is that there are so many plausible candidates from Northern Africa and the Middle East and India that there's almost certainly so much corruption of any word that passes along the trade routes like that that pinning down one source language is just not going to be possible. A couple of commenters on Lieberman's blog post also highlight a Romani term, monghivio, that seems like it could also be a strong candidate for linguistic dispersal throughout Europe and Britain among a group that could well have been strongly associated with performing monkeys. And monkey doesn't hog all the mystery. Ape, too, uh, though we can trace it further back, is ultimately shrouded in mystery. It entered Northern European languages in antiquity, with forms showing up in Proto-Germanic, Celtic, and Slavic languages, but it seems not to have come from the older Indo-European roots that provide most of the core word stock for those languages. Much like with monkey, it appears very likely to be a word from an Eastern language that made its way into the lands which had no native apes, uh, besides human beings, and therefore no native word for them. Though, this ape group of words was borrowed deep in prehistory for Northern Europe. So, at least that mystery being unsolved is pretty understandable. How much trouble it is to track a new Renaissance word is a bit more surprising. And now that we have got that monkey off our back, let's wrap up with another little linguistic exercise, our actual mystery word. Our word this time is less about the word itself and more the letter that begins it. Um, I'll have to double-check, but I'm pretty sure this letter will actually bring us to the end of our medieval alphabetical run. I think with this letter, we've kind of hit every letter used at the starts of words in the major medieval languages that used the Roman alphabet as a base. There are a few other distinctly medieval characters we could explore, like Win, which is a runic alternative to W, but is just a different visual representation of W, so it's not really its own distinct letter. And there are all sorts of scribal abbreviations and symbols and shorthands, but again, those also aren't really their own alphabetical letters. So, 
I think we end this first alphabetical series of mystery words, uh, which started all the way back in episode 17, with the letter Yoch, or Yog, spelled Y-O-G-H. The pronunciation of the name varies depending on who you ask, and the sound the letter itself makes is similarly varied. What it looks like, uh, in later, more stable forms and in most modern typefaces that include it, is like a three with maybe a bit more angularity, so maybe like an italicized three, or a lowercase cursive Z, a point we'll come back to, actually. And it generally sits lower on the baseline than a three does. In older forms, the bottom loop may be closed, which highlights the origins of this character in the lowercase g of insular script, one of the major handwriting styles of the Middle Ages, which originated in Ireland and was adopted in Britain and spread to the continent. And that connection is a key part of the strange story of the sound of yog and how it contributes to some of the more baffling features of modern English spelling. But before we get too deep into the history of the letter, let's introduce our actual mystery word, which we can use as a working example. Our word is yelled. That's yog, E-L-D, yelled. This is a Middle English word uh, that's also basically still a modern English word if you just adjust the vowels. Yeld is a noun meaning payment, something covetous princes and monkeys might yearn for, and it comes from the verb yelden, which means to pay or to yield. And yeld is also that, the yield, the harvest, the taking. But we also have another word for payment, geld, as in geld, the man price, the money to be paid in compensation for killing a person. And geld is related to gold and gilded and a whole family of words derived from that stem. And, of course, the truth is that geld is not really a different word from yeld. It's a variant in pronunciation that eventually creates two separate words, gild and yield. And that's part of the complicated phonetic history of yog. What sound does it make? Well, that depends. As its appearance suggests, it descends from the Old English g which could be pronounced as a guh or a yuh, depending on position. Uh, it could also be the voiced velar fricative, a phoneme Old English had, but which Modern English has lost. Uh, Spanish still has it as the G sound in agua. Uh, it's the sound in Arabic, usually transliterated as gh. Um, anyway, even in Old English, G was a bit of a chameleon, and yog inherits that. Uh, also taking over duty for the voiceless velar fricative, ch, the sound in Scottish loch or German Johann Sebastian Bach. That's quite a range of sounds to invest in one character, especially one not really shared by other languages. So, as the Middle English period draws to a close, scribes, and especially printers, begin ditching this oddball character, uh, much like they ditched win for w and thorn for th, and replaced it with Y in most of the Y words, like yield, but also replaced most of the velar fricatives, um, a sound that, again, is dropping out of English at the time, with GH. And that's why we have all of these GH spellings that seem to make no sense in modern pronunciation, like the classic non-rhyming quartet of cough, though, through, and plow, uh, at least in its British spelling. Another famous bit of trivia about yog, uh, similar to the story of how Thorn became the seeming Y in Ye Old Curiosity Shop, uh, this story involves Scottish names. 
Scott's orthography used yog also to represent both y and g and also ing sounds. But rather than converting the yog back to y or g, it was replaced, or perhaps confused, for the cursive letter z. And thus the names McKinney and Mingis became McKenzie and Menzies, and eventually were pronounced that way too, uh, especially on the English side of the border. Anyway, back to common English words, this forked path through yog is also how we have both yard and garden, which both also originate in the same root. And so British back gardens and American backyards are not conceptually different at all. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Medieval Death Trip. You can get more information about the sources I used at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can also email questions or comments to me there at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast, where I'll usually post the upcoming riddles and mystery words for you to ponder before each episode comes out. And if you'd like to help support the show, you can do that via Patreon. Our patrons get access to bonus content like the appendix episode I just posted, delivering all the extra commentary I had left on Meyer Helmbrecht and couldn't fit into the final episode of that series. I'd like to recognize our new and some returning patrons, Mark, Nell, Steve, Bravmano, and Kian. And a special shout out to Irina, echoing up from the past from those manuscript rooms of the British Library. Thank you all so much for your support. Those of you who would like to join this esteemed company can do so at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast or just search for Medieval Death Trip at Patreon. Until next time, remember not to open your barrel of monkeys in the same room as your crate of apes or there will be trouble. And thanks for listening. Monkeys are loose. <laughs> Full of beans, sounds like to me. I let them loose. I mean, out of their cages. But I keep them in there. Locked up in that room. If I was ever to let them monkeys out of the house, they'd be running this town inside a week. <laughs> <laughs>